Chapter thirty six of A Child's History of England. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Gwyneth Connell. A Child's History of England by Charles Dickens. Chapter thirty six England under James the Second. King James the Second was a man so very disagreeable that even the best of historians has favoured his brother Charles as becoming, by comparison, quite a pleasant character. The one object of his short reign was to re-establish the Catholic religion in England, and this he doggedly pursued with such a stupid obstinacy that his career very soon came to a close. The first thing he did was to assure his council that he would make it his endeavour to preserve the government, both in church and state, as it was by law established, and that he would always take care to defend and support the church. Great public acclamations were raised over this fair speech, and a great deal was said, from the pulpits and elsewhere, about the word of a king which was never broken, by credulous people who little supposed that he had formed a secret council for Catholic affairs, of which a mischievous Jesuit, called Father Petre, was one of the chief members. With tears of joy in his eyes, he received, as the beginning of his pension from the King of France, five hundred thousand livres. Yet, with a mixture of meanness and arrogance that belonged to his contemptible character, he was always jealous of making some show of being independent of the King of France, while he pocketed his money. As, notwithstanding his publishing two papers in favour of popery, and not likely to do it much service, I should think, written by the King, his brother, and found in his strong-box, and his open display of himself attending Mass, the Parliament was very obsequious, and granted him a large sum of money, he began his reign with a belief that he could do what he pleased, and with a determination to do it. Before we proceed to its principal events, let us dispose of Titus Oates. He was tried for perjury a fortnight after the coronation, and besides being very heavily fined, was sentenced to stand twice in the pillory to be whipped from Aldgate to Newgate one day, and from Newgate to Tyburn two days afterwards, and to stand in the pillory five times a year as long as he lived. This fearful sentence was actually inflicted on the rascal. Being unable to stand after his first flogging, he was dragged on a sledge from Newgate to Tyburn and flogged as he was drawn along. He was so strong a villain that he did not die under the torture, but lived to be afterwards pardoned and rewarded, though not to be ever believed in any more. Dangerfield, the only other one of that crew left alive, was not so fortunate. He was almost killed by a whipping from Newgate to Tyburn, and as if that were not punishment enough, a ferocious barrister of Gray's Inn gave him a poke in the eye with his cane, which caused his death, for which the ferocious barrister was deservedly tried and executed. As soon as James was on the throne, Argyle and Monmouth went from Brussels to Rotterdam, and attended a meeting of Scottish exiles held there, to con concert measures for a rising in England. It was agreed that Argyle should effect a landing in Scotland, and Monmouth in England, and that two Englishmen should be sent with Argyle to be in his confidence, and two Scotchmen with the Duke of Monmouth. Argyle was the first to act upon this contract. But, two of his men being taken prisoners at the Orkney Islands, the government became aware of his intention, and was able to act against him with such vigour as to prevent his raising more than two or three thousand Highlanders, although he sent a fiery cross by trusty messengers from clan to clan and from glen to glen, as the custom then was when those wild people were to be excited by their chiefs. As he was moving towards Glasgow with his small force, he was betrayed by some of his followers, taken and carried with his hands tied behind his back to his old prison in Edinburgh Castle. James ordered him to be executed on his old shamefully unjust sentence within three days, and he appears to have been anxious that his legs should have been pounded with his old favourite the boot. However, the boot was not applied, he was simply beheaded, and his head was set upon the top of Edinburgh jail. One of those Englishmen who had been assigned to him was that old soldier Rumble, the master of the Rye House. He was sorely wounded, and within a week after Argyle had suffered with great courage was brought up for trial, lest he should die and disappoint the king.
He, too, was executed after defending himself with great spirit, and saying that he did not believe that God had made the greater part of mankind to carry saddles on their backs and bridles in their mouths and to be ridden by a few, booted and spurred for the purpose, in which I thoroughly agree with Rumbold. The Duke of Monmouth, partly through being detained and partly through idling his time away, was five or six weeks behind his friend when he landed at Lyme in Dorset, having at his right hand an unlucky nobleman called Lord Grey of Work, who of himself would have ruined a far more promising expedition. He immediately set up his standard in the market-place, and proclaimed the king a tyrant, and a popish usurper, and I know not what else, charging him, not only with what he had done, which was bad enough, but with what neither he nor anybody else had done, such as setting fire to London, and poisoning the late king. Raising some four thousand men by these means, he marched on to Taunton, where there were many Protestant dissenters who were strongly opposed to the Catholics. Here both the rich and poor turned out to receive him. Ladies waved a welcome to him from all the windows as he passed along the streets, flowers were strewn in his way, and every compliment and honour that could be devised was showered upon him. Among the rest, twenty young ladies came forward in their best clothes and in their brightest beauty, and gave him a Bible ornamented with their own fair hands, together with other presents. Encouraged by this homage, he proclaimed himself king and went on to Bridgewater. But here the government troops, under the Earl of Feversham, were close at hand, and he was so dispirited at finding that he made but few powerful friends after all, that it was a question whether he should disband his army and endeavour to escape. It was resolved, at the instance of that unlucky Lord Grey, to make a night attack on the king's army, as it lay encamped on the edge of a morass called Sedgemoor. The horsemen were commanded by the same unlucky lord, who was not a brave man. He gave up the battle almost at the first obstacle, which was a deep drain, and although the poor countrymen who had turned out for Monmouth fought bravely with scythes, poles, and pitchforks, and such poor weapons as they had, they were soon dispersed by the trained soldiers and fled in all directions. When the Duke of Monmouth himself fled, was not known in the, in the confusion, but the unlucky Lord Grey was taken early next day, and then another of the party was taken who confessed that he had parted from the Duke only four hours before. Strict search being made, he was found disguised as a peasant, hidden in a ditch under fern and nettles, with a few peas in his pocket which he had gathered in the fields to eat. The only other articles he had upon him were a few papers and little books, one of the latter being a strange jumble in his own writing of charms, songs, recipes, and prayers. He was completely broken. He wrote a miserable letter to the king, beseeching and entreating to be allowed to see him. When he was taken to London and conveyed bound into the king's presence, he crawled to him on his knees and made a most degrading exhibition. As James never forgave or relented towards anybody, he was not likely to soften towards the issuer of the Lyme Proclamation, so he told the suppliant to prepare for death. On the 15th of July, 1685, this unfortunate favourite of the people was brought out to die on Tower Hill. The crowd was immense, and the tops of all the houses were covered with gazers. He had seen his wife, the daughter of the Duke of Buccleuch, in the tower, and had talked much of a lady whom he loved far better, the Lady Harriet Wentworth, who was one of the last persons he remembered in this life. Before laying down his head upon the block, he felt the edge of the axe, and told the executioner that he feared it was not sharp enough, and that the axe was not heavy enough. On the executioner replying that it was of the proper kind, the Duke said, "'I pray you have a care, and do not use me so awkwardly as you used my Lord Russell.' The executioner, made nervous by this, and trembling, struck once and merely gashed him in the neck. Upon this the Duke of Monmouth raised his head and looked the man reproachfully in the face. Then he struck twice, and then thrice, and then threw down the axe, and cried out in a voice of horror that he could not finish that work. The sheriffs, however, threatening him with what should be done to himself if he did not, he took it up again and struck a fourth time and a fifth time. Then the wretched head at last fell off, and James, Duke of Monmouth, was dead in the thirty-sixth year of his age. He was a showy, graceful man, with many popular qualities, and had found much favour in the open hearts of the English.
The atrocities committed by the government which followed this Monmouth rebellion form the blackest and most lamentable page in English history. The poor peasants, having been dispersed with great loss, and their leaders having been taken, one would think that the implacable king might have been satisfied. But no, he let loose upon them, among other intolerable monsters, a Colonel Kirk, who had served against the Moors, and whose soldiers, called by the people Kirk's lambs, because they bore a lamb upon their flag as the emblem of Christianity, were worthy of their leader. The atrocities committed by these demons in human shape are far too horrible to be related here. It is enough to say that besides most ruthlessly murdering and robbing them, and ruining them by making them buy their pardons at the price of all they possessed, it was one of Kirk's favourite amusements, as he and his officers sat drinking after dinner and toasting the king, to have batches of prisoners hanged outside the windows for the company's diversion, and that when their feet quivered in the convulsions of death he used to swear that they should have music to their dancing and would order the drums to beat and the trumpets to play. The detestable king informed him, as an acknowledgment of these services, that he was very well satisfied with his proceedings. But the king's great delight was in the proceedings of Jeffreys, now a peer, who went down into the west with four other judges to try persons accused of having had any share in the rebellion. The king pleasantly called this Jeffreys's campaign. The people down in that part of the country remember it to this day as the bloody assize. It began at Winchester, where a poor deaf old lady, Mrs. Alicia Lyle, the widow of one of the judges of Charles I, who had been murdered abroad by some royalist assassins, was charged with having given shelter in her house to two fugitives from Sedgemoor. Three times the jury refused to find her guilty, until Jeffreys bullied and frightened them into that false verdict. When he had extorted it from them, he said, "'Gentlemen, if I had been one of you, and she had been my own mother, I would have found her guilty,' as I dare say he would. He sentenced her to be burned alive that very afternoon." The clergy of the cathedral and some others interfered in her favour, and she was beheaded within a week. As a high mark of his approbation, the king made Jeffreys Lord Chancellor, and he then went on to Dorchester, to Exeter, to Taunton, and to Wells. It is astonishing, when we read of the enormous injustice and barbarity of this beast, to know that no one struck him dead on the judgment seat. It was enough for any man or woman to be accused by an enemy before Jeffreys to be found guilty of high treason. One man who pleaded not guilty he ordered to be taken out of court upon the instant and hanged, and this so terrified the prisoners in general that they mostly pleaded guilty at once. At Dorchester alone, in the course of a few days, Jeffreys hanged eighty people, besides whipping, transporting, imprisoning, and selling his slaves great numbers. He executed in all two hundred and fifty or three hundred. These executions took place among the neighbours and friends of the sentenced in thirty-six towns and villaged. Their bodies were mangled, steeped in cauldrons of boiling pitch and tar, and hung up by the roadsides in the streets over the very churches. The sight and smell of heads and limbs, the hissing and bubbling of the infernal cauldrons, and the tears and terrors of the people were dreadful beyond all description. One rustic, who was forced to steep the remains in the black pot, was ever afterwards called Tom Boylman. The hangman has ever since been called Jack Ketch, because a man of that name went hanging and hanging all day long in the train of Jeffreys. You will hear much of the horrors of the great French Revolution. Many and terrible they were, there is no doubt, but I know of nothing worse done by the maddened people of France in that awful time than was done by the highest judge in England, with the express approval of the King of England, in the bloodiest size. Nor was this e even this all. Jeffreys was as fond of money for himself as of misery for others, and he sold pardons wholesale to fill his pockets. The King ordered at one time a thousand prisoners to be given to certain of his favourites, in order that they might bargain with them for their pardons. The young ladies of Taunton, who had presented the Bible, were bestowed upon the maids of honour at court, and those precious ladies made very hard bargains with them indeed. When the bloody assize was at its most dismal height, the King was diverting himself with horse-races in the very place where Mrs. Lyle had been executed.
When Jeffreys had done his worst and came home again, he was particularly complimented in the Royal Gazette, and when the King heard that through drunkenness and raging he was very ill, his odious Majesty remarked that such another man could not easily be found in England. Besides all this, a former sheriff of London, named Cornish, was hanged within sight of his own house, after an abominably conducted trial, for having had a share in the Rye House plot, on evidence given by Rumsey, which that villain was obliged to confess was directly opposed to the evidence he had given on the trial of Lord Russell. And, on the very same day, a worthy widow, named Elizabeth Gaunt, was burned alive at Tyburn, for having sheltered a wretch who himself gave evidence against her. She settled the fuel about herself with her own hands, so that the flames should reach her quickly, and nobly said, with her last breath, that she had obeyed the sacred command of God, to give refuge to the outcast, and not to betray the wanderer. After all this hanging, beheading, burning, boiling, mutilating, exposing, robbing, transporting, and selling into slavery, of his unhappy subjects, the king not unnaturally thought that he could do whatever he would. So he went to work to change the religion of the country with all possible speed, and what he did was this. He first of all tried to get rid of what was called the Test Act, which prevented the Catholics from holding public employments, by his own power of dispensing with the penalties. He tried it in one case, and eleven of the twelve judges deciding in his favour he exercised it in three others, being those of three dignitaries of University College Oxford who had become Papists, and whom he kept in their places and sanctioned. He revived the hated ecclesiastical commission to get rid of Compton, Bishop of London, who manfully opposed him. He solicited the Pope to favour England with an ambassador, which the Pope, who was a sensible man then, rather unwillingly did. He flourished Father Petri before the eyes of the people on all possible occasions. He favoured the establishment of convents in several parts of London. He was delighted to have the streets, and even the court itself, filled with monks and friars in the habits of their orders. He constantly endeavoured to make Catholics of the Protestants about him. He held private interviews, which he called closetings, with those members of Parliament who held offices, to persuade them to consent to the design he had in view. When they did not consent, they were removed or resigned of themselves, and their places were given to Catholics. He displaced Protestant officers from the army by every means in his power, and got Catholics into their places too. He tried the same thing with the corporations, and also, though not so successfully, with the Lord Lieutenants of Counties. To terrify the people into the endurance of all these measures, he kept an army of fifteen thousand men encamped on Hounslow Heath, where Mass was openly performed in the General's tent, and where priests went among the soldiers endeavouring to persuade them to become Catholics. For circulating a paper among those men advising them to be true to their religion, a Protestant clergyman named Johnson, the chaplain of the late Lord Russell, was actually sentenced to stand three times in the pillory, and was actually whipped from Newgate to Tyburn. He dismissed his own brother-in-law from his council because he was a Protestant, and made a privy councillor of the before-mentioned Father Petrie. He handed Ireland over to Richard Talbot, Earl of Tyrconnell, a worthless dissolute knave who played the same game there for his master, and who played the deeper game for himself of one day putting it under the protection of the French king. In going to these extremities, every man of sense and judgment among the Catholics, from the Pope to a porter, knew that the King was a mere bigoted fool, who would undo himself in the cause he sought to advance, but he was deaf to all reason, and happily for England after afterwards, went tumbling off his throne in his own blind way. A spirit began to arise in the country, which the besotted blunderer little expected. He first found it out in the University of Cambridge. Having made a Catholic a dean at Oxford without any opposition, he tried to make a monk a master of arts at Cambridge, which attempt the university resisted, and defeated him. He then went back to his favourite Oxford. On the death of the president of Magdalen College, he commanded that there should be elected to succeed him one Mr. Anthony Farmer, whose only recommendation was that he was of the King's religion. The university plucked up courage at last, and refused. The King substituted another man, and it still refused, resolving to stand by its own election of a Mr. Howe. 
The dull tyrant upon this punished Mr. Howe and five and twenty more by causing them to be expelled, and declared incapable of holding any church preferment. Then he proceeded to what he supposed to be his highest step, to but to what was, in fact, his last plunge head foremost in his tumble off his throne. He had issued a declaration that there should be no religious tests or penal laws in order to let in the Catholics more easily, but the Protestant dissenters, unmindful of themselves, had gallantly joined the regular church in opposing it tooth and nail. The King and Father Petrie now resolved to have this read on a certain Sunday in all the churches, and to order it to be circulated for that purpose by the bishops. The latter took counsel with the Archbishop of Canterbury, who was in disgrace, and they resolved that the declaration should not be read, and that they would petition the King against it. The Archbishop himself wrote out the petition, and six bishops went into the King's bedchamber the same night to present it, to his infinite astonishment. Next day was the Sunday fixed for the reading, and it was only read by two hundred clergymen out of ten thousand. The King resolved against all advice to prosecute the bishops in the Court of King's Bench, and within three weeks they were summoned before the Privy Council and committed to the Tower. As the six bishops were taken to that dismal place by water, the people who were assembled in immense numbers fell upon their knees and wept for them and prayed for them. When they got to the Tower, the officers and soldiers on guard besought them for their blessing. While they were confined there, the soldiers every day drank to their release with loud shouts. When they were brought up to the Court of King's Bench for their trial, which the Attorney General said was for the high offence of censuring the government, and giving their opinion about affairs of state, they were attended by similar multitudes, and surrounded by a throng of noblemen and gentlemen. When the jury went out at seven o'clock at night to consider of their verdict, everybody except the King knew that they would rather starve than yield to the King's brewer, who was one of them, and wanted a verdict for his customer. When they came into court next morning, after resisting the brewer all night, and gave a verdict of not guilty, such a shout rose up in Westminster Hall as it had never heard before, and it was passed on among the people away to Temple Bar, and, again, and away again to the Tower. It did not pass only to the east, but passed to the west, too, until it reached the camp at Hounslow, where the fifteen thousand soldiers took it up and echoed it. And still, when the dull king, who was then with Lord Feversham, heard the mighty roar, asked in alarm what it was, and was told that it was nothing but the acquittal of the bishops, he said in his dogged way, "'Call you that nothing? It is so much the worse for them.' Between the petition and the trial, the Queen had given birth to a son, which Father Petri rather thought was owing to St. Winifred. But I doubt if St. Winifred had much to do with it as the King's friend, inasmuch as the entirely new prospect of a Catholic successor, for both the King's daughters were Protestants, determined the Earls of Shrewsbury, Danby, and Devonshire, Lord Lumley, the Bishop of London, Admiral Russell, and Colonel Sidney, to invite the Prince of Orange over to England. The royal mole, seeing his danger at last, made, in his fright, many great concessions, besides raising an army of forty thousand men. But the Prince of Orange was not a man for James the Second to cope with. His preparations were extraordinarily vigorous, and his mind was resolved. For a fortnight after the Prince was ready to sail for England, a great wind from the west prevented the departure of his fleet. Even when the wind lulled and it did sail, it was dispersed by a storm, and was obliged to put back to refit. At last, on the 1st of November, 1688, the Protestant East Wind, as it was long called, began to blow, and on the 3rd the people of Dover and the people of Calais saw a fleet twenty miles long sailing gallantly by between the two places. On Monday the 5th it anchored at Torbay in Devonshire, and the Prince, with a splendid retinue of officers and men, marched into Exeter. But the people in that western part of the country had suffered so much in the bloody assize that they had lost heart. Few people joined him, and he began to think of returning, and publishing the invitation he had received from those lords as his justification for having come at all. At this crisis some of the gentry joined him. The royal army began to falter, an engagement was signed, by which all who set their hand to it declared that they would support one another in defence of the laws and liberties of the three kingdoms, of the Protestant religion, and of the Prince of Orange.
From that time the cause received no check, the greatest towns in England began, one after another, to declare for the Prince, and he knew that it was all safe with him when the University of Oxford offered to melt down its plate if he wanted any money. By this time the King was running about in a pitiable way, touching people for the King's evil in one place, reviewing his troops in another, and bleeding from the nose in a third. The young Prince was sent to Portsmouth, Father Petrie went off like a shot to France, and there was a general and swift dispersal of all the priests and friars. One after another the King's most important officers and friends deserted him and went over to the Prince. In the night, his daughter Anne fled from Whitehall Palace, and the Bishop of London, who had once been a soldier, rode before her with a drawn sword in his hand and pistols at his saddle. "'God help me!' cried the miserable King. "'My very children have forsaken me!' In his wildness, after debating with such lords as were in London, whether he should or should not call a Parliament, and after naming three of them to negotiate with the Prince, he resolved to fly to France. He had the little Prince of Wales brought back from Portsmouth, and the child and the Queen crossed the river to Lambeth in an open boat on a miserable wet night, and got safely away. This was on the night of the ninth of December. At one o'clock on the morning of the eleventh, the King, who had in the meantime received a letter from the Prince of Orange stating his objects, got out of bed, told Lord Northumberland, who lay in his room, not to open the door until the usual hour in the morning, and went down the back stairs, the same, I suppose, by which the priest in the wig and gown had come up to his brother and crossed the river in a small boat, sinking the great seal of England, by the way. Horses having been provided, he rode, accompanied by Sir Edward Hales, to Feversham, where he embarked in a custom-house hoy. The master of this hoy, wanting more ballast, ran into the Isle of Sheppey to get it, where the fishermen and smugglers crowded about the boat, and informed the king of their suspicions that he was a hatchet-faced Jesuit. As they took his money and would not let him go, he told them who he was, and that the Prince of Orange wanted to take his life, and he began to scream for a boat, and then to cry, because he had lost a piece of wood on his ride which he called a fragment of our Saviour's cross. He put himself into the hands of the Lord Lieutenant of the country, and his detention was made known to the Prince of Orange at Windsor, who, only wanting to get rid of him, and not caring where he went, so that he went away, was very much disconcerted that they did not let him go. However, there was nothing for it but to have him brought back, with some state in the way of lifeguards, to Whitehall. And as soon as he got there, in his infatuation, he heard Mass, and set a Jesuit to say grace at his public dinner. The people had been thrown into the strangest state of confusion by his flight, and had taken it into their heads that the Irish part of the army were going to murder the Protestants. Therefore they set the bells a-ringing, and lighted watch-fires, and burned Catholic chapels, and looked about in all directions for Father Petrie and the Jesuits, while the Pope's ambassador was running away in the dress of a footman. They found no Jesuits, but a man, who had been, once been a frightened witness before Jeffreys in court, saw a dro swollen, drunken face looking through a window down at Wapping, which he well remembered. The face was in a sailor's dress, but he knew it to be the face of that accursed judge, and he seized him. The people, to their lasting honour, did not tear him to pieces. After knocking him about a little, they took him in the basest agonies of terror to the Lord Mayor, who sent him at his own shrieking petition to the Tower for safety. There he died. Their bewilderment continuing, the people now lighted bonfires and made rejoicings, as if they had any reason to be glad to have the King back again. But his stay was very short, for the English guards were removed from Whitehall, Dutch guards were marched up to it, and he was told by one of his late ministers that the Prince would enter London next day, and he had better go to Ham. He said Ham was a cold, damp place, and he would rather go to Rochester. He thought himself very cunning in this, as he meant to escape from Rochester to France. The Prince of Orange and his friends knew that perfectly well, and desired nothing more. So he went to Gravesend in his royal barge, attended by certain lords, and watched by Dutch troops, and pitied by the generous people, who were far more forgiving than he had ever been when they saw him in his humiliation. 
on the night of the twenty-third of December, not even then understanding that everybody wanted to get rid of him, he went out absurdly through his Rochester garden down to the Medway, and got away to France, where he rejoined the Queen. There had been a council in his absence of the Lords and the authorities of London. When the Prince came on the day after the King's departure, he summoned the Lords to meet him, and soon afterwards all those who had served in any of the Parliaments of King Charles the Second. It was finally resolved by these authorities that the throne was vacant by the conduct of King James the Second, that it was inconsistent with the safety and welfare of this Protestant kingdom to be governed by a Popish Prince, that the Prince and Princess of Orange should be King and Queen during their lives and the life of the survivor of them, and that their children should succeed them if they had any that if they had none, the Princess Anne and her children should succeed, that if she had none, the heirs of the Prince of Orange should succeed. On the 13th of January, 1689, the Prince and Princess, sitting on a throne in Whitehall, bound themselves to these conditions. The Protestant religion was established in England, and England's great and glorious revolution was complete. It's the end of chapter 36, recording by Gwyneth Connell, New York City.